when real music happens, it really hits you. Sometimes you hear a song and it changes everything. On the KUTX podcast, this song, artists talk about the songs that changed their lives. You can find this song on KUTX.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. It tastes so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I am Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm Raj Patel, a professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today, our secret ingredient is soda. I see cola, coca, sprite, I love the most. I ride roller coaster, I try all the cultures. One of the ways that these beverages become super popular is not through their individual curative benefits, but through the recognition that the more you do it as a social activity, the more it becomes a sort of powerful thing. The reason why you can have a multi-billion dollar global industry that makes huge amounts of money off of selling sugary water is because sugar is so cheap. And that power is really the power of the food system. With sodas everywhere. We're very excited to have Marion Nessel on, who is a nutritionist at NYU and the head of the food studies program there, and the author of many books, including a new one called Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. I first learned about Mary Nessel's work from her 2002 book, Food Politics, which is an absolutely groundbreaking book. I, I mean, I love Marion's work because she's she's kind of America's nutritionist, not only by writing food politics, but then guides like what to eat. And what I thought was very interesting was her 2008 book, Pet Food Politics, which, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's, it would be a bonkers thing for a nutritionist to do, but actually... Everything that's wrong with pet food is a kind of auger for everything that's wrong in the food system. So when you have massive recalls of pet food, that flags what's wrong with the way that food safety works in America. And similarly, the fact that our dogs and cats and animal companions are swelling and getting bigger and bigger. Uh, again, that has a lot to do with the, the quality of food and the quantity of food that uh, they're getting. So it, it's, it's sort of super interesting just to see how she's taking very seriously the idea of uh, thinking systemically about food. But her, her blog, foodpolitics.com, is just... Just fabulous. We're very excited to have you on, Marion, to talk about your new book, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, which is a very encouraging and hopeful title. I wonder if you could start us off, Marion, by talking us through, first of all, why it's so difficult to figure out just how much soda Americans drink. And then sort of move into some of, your, uh, some of the data that you found on you know, exactly how much are we, are we drinking now. Well, it's, uh, in doing the research for the book, uh, one of the things that absolutely floored me was how difficult it was to get accurate information or reasonably accurate information about the consumption of sodas in the United States. If you want to talk about sodas and health, which I do, uh, you need to know how much people are drinking, who's drinking it, how much are they drinking, um, and how much of a problem this is. 
And it used to be really, really easy to get this information. You just flipped on to the USDA website, and it had data on production, annual production of sodas, uh, full sugar and diet, uh, dating back to the 1950s. Um, And all you had to do was look at that. And when I went to do that, I was absolutely stunned to find out that data set ended in 2006 because the soda industry marketing people that they used to get the information from were refusing to allow the USDA to publish that information. And I guess the reason for that was that they sell that information to the industry in a report that costs about $6,000. And in order for me to get that report i had to buy it right there was no other way to get that information and then when you buy it you only get it for that year if you want it for the next year you have to pay six more thousand dollars right that's right it costs about it's about six thousand dollars a year and i have to say that i bought the report in i think august um, of 2012 and they were very very nice to give me the 2013 data and not charge me for it And so when you got the data, what did you find? Well, the first thing was to look at how much soda is consumed. And the the way that they do it is they take the industry's marketing figures and divide by the population and get a per capita number. And that per capita number is given in one kind of units or another. And I don't know, it was roughly 40 gallons a year of total soda and about 30 of sugar-sweetened beverages. And that's um, gallons per capita. That means men, women, children children, little tiny babies, elderly people who don't drink soda. It means everybody. It's a lot. Put it to us in 12-ounce cans. How many 12-ounce cans is an American consuming right now? Well, I have to say I don't remember the number offhand, but um, it's something like 300 a year. Right. So nearly... One a day. Yeah, roughly one. one a day. Roughly one a day. Um, on average, and we know also from industry statistics, because they look at these things very carefully, that only half the American population drinks soda on any given day. So that means that the half that's drinking it is drinking two on average a day. Um, And within that half that drinks soda, a a quarter of that population has four or more 12-ounce servings a day. And, of course, there are going to be people at the extreme end who have even more than that. So you don't worry about the people who are drinking one a week. That's just not a health issue. Where it becomes a health issue is at these really higher amounts. Marion, do you have any disclosures about the influence of the soda industry on you? Oh, Yes. One of the things I talk about is, and I think one of the most important chapters in the book, and it's the one that I feel most passionate about these days because of my own background. Uh, My doctorate is in molecular biology, and I'm extremely concerned about food industry influence on research and food, on food and nutrition research. More and more food companies are sponsoring research studies and um, these studies invariably come out with results that can be used in marketing, and the soda industry is a prime example of that. They fund lots and lots of studies that show that exercise is more important than dietary intake um, in gaining weight, that fructose 
uh, one of the sugars that Robert Lessig is most concerned about has no adverse effects on your health, that sugars are okay, sodas are okay. I could go on and on and on, and it's a, be- and it's a real concern. And I'm particularly concerned because soda companies sponsor organizations that I belong to, uh, particularly the American Society for Nutrition, which is the main organization that um, represents or works for the interests of nutrition scientists and physicians uh, who practice nutrition as part of their work. Um, And it publishes three of the leading nutrition research journals. And this uh, organization is increasingly sponsored by food companies to the extent where uh, Michelle Simon, who's a lawyer in the Bay Area, has just done a major report on the sponsorship of of this society and how people in the society are influenced by it. And the the sessions that the society are sponsored and the results that come out of it very much reflect the interests of the soda companies. So, you know, as someone who's a member of this society, I read journals that are sponsored by soda companies. I go to meetings that are sponsored by soda companies. I'm inevitably a participant in these kinds of things, although I have never directly taken money of any kind from a soda company, and I try not to take money from food companies at all. Now, um, how did we ever get this industry that has become this sort of globe-spanning, multi-billion-dollar industry that is essentially selling um, at, um, I assume, a a pretty big markup and pretty good profit, uh, an ounce of sugar per, nearly an ounce of sugar per ounce of water? How did did that ever happen? No, 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 a a teaspoon per ounce. I'm sorry, a a teaspoon, a teaspoon, a teaspoon of sugar (laughs) for every ounce of water, which is a lot of sugar. That's to, a lot of sugar. To dilute into a, to an ounce of water, how did how did that ever happen? Like how did how did how did it ever come to this that this well, this the, industry? Well, the wonderful up? thing about it, it's just an amazing story of American food marketing. It's an astonishing story, and um, believe me, when I started writing this book, the first thing I discovered was that I was not the first to be looking at this kind of thing. You could fill a whole library with books about the soda industry uh, with people examining exactly how this happened. Uh, there are histories of, of the so- of, especially of Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola left an astonishing record of every single thing that it ever did uh, throughout its history and those records are available in libraries uh, and scholars have mined them to the hilt. So we know a great deal about how the product was invented, how it was first sold overseas, how it was first marketed, uh, how the marketing continued, and when there was an enormous uptick in the marketing and the effect of marketing. And, and I think World War II marked uh, a really major turning point for Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola offered to the Army to sell Coca-Cola anywhere in the world where American troops were uh, stationed at a nickel uh, for a 
um, I, I don't know whether I must have been eight ounces or six. It was six ounces in those days. Um, and the Army took them up on it and did all of the transportation that was necessary to move Coca-Cola across the world. So by the time World War II was over, uh, Coca-Cola was a worldwide beverage with astonishing distribution uh, in practically every country in the world. Um, very, very smart marketers. And then in the 1980s, when everybody's marketing became uh, very intense, Coca-Cola increased its marketing, Pepsi-Cola increased its marketing. The war between Coke and Pepsi is a marketing strategy that benefits both of them. Both became, in, in a very real way, icons of American capitalism, if you want to put it that way. Marion, I, I was fascinated to read uh, war was so important in the, the transmission of Coke, not least because war was one of the reasons why we had soda beverages in the first place. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole idea of sparkling mineral water was an idea that comes out of the, the British uh, Navy. And one of the ideas was that uh, it was a way of encouraging soldiers who, wouldn't, uh, who, who wanted to have rum to have something else instead. And sparkling water was, was one of those ideas. But what I was really interested in in, in reading the book was the way that you're, you've made a book that's meant to be used uh, as a, an advocacy tool in a way that perhaps food politics was there to sort of demonstrate some of the, the wickedness of um, the, the food industry and its interaction with our governments. But with soda politics, you're, you're putting a weapon in the hands of a range of people who want to take on, as you say, big soda and win. And I just wondered if you would share with us a little bit about what what's in that shift from writing a book that merely describes the politics to one where you're you're really wanting to to forge something like a spear tip well it comes directly out of my teaching um i've been teaching food politics in one version or another at new york university for 25 years now and always in teaching this material students ask me what they can do about it and here again, sodas are just a wonderful topic to talk about because there has been so much advocacy, uh, health advocacy to drink less soda and environmental advocacy to uh, throughout the world to try to get soda companies to stop exploiting local water resources to do something about uh, environmental protection and to produce sugar more uh, in a more environmentally friendly way uh, to stop littering the world with soda containers. Those kinds of advocacy efforts in many cases have been very successful. The soda industry believes that health advocacy is responsible for its declining sales in the United States both for sugar-sweetened sodas and for artificially sweetened sodas. Sales of both are going down and have been going down for about a decade. And in in the annual report to the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, Coca-Cola has, for the last decade at least, said that obesity is the single greatest threat to its potential profits. Uh, because health advocates are telling everybody not to drink soda as the first line of, of, of defense against obesity. I certainly have been doing that. I've been telling people for ages, if they're having trouble with their weight, the first thing they should do is to stop drinking sugar-sweetened beverages, and people tell me that their weight just drops off the minute they stop. All those sugary calories add up. 
Um, so it's a good place to talk about not only advocacy but successful advocacy. Advocacy can be really successful. And it, and what's interesting about advocacy to me is that the rules about how to do it were established decades ago by people like Saul Alinsky, who was a community organizer in Chicago, the one that uh, President Obama worked with. Um, and the rules are really very straightforward. You identify what the problem is. You get people together to decide how to solve that problem. You do a lot of community or community organizing to get allies to help you solve that problem, and you go ahead and do it. You use the political system, just the way lobbyists do, uh, to try to get what you want. And there have been so many examples of successful advocacy around soda issues that it seemed to me it was really a, a way of talking about these things that would be inspirational for students. Because one of the things I hear from students that just breaks my heart is how depressed they are about the uh, political system, which is, after all, quite depressing. <laughs> but right. I do think you can do something about it, and if students aren't going to be trying to do something about it, then we haven't got a chance. Because the future lies with them. So, Marion, I'm looking at um, a chart in your book, and it looks like soda consumption of sugared soda peaks in about 2000, and then it's a pretty steeply curving line going down all the way until right now. And what have been the most successful strategies in making this turnaround? Well, I think just the noise about it. Um, my book, Food Politics, came out in 2002. By that time, Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation had already come out, and Michael Pollan's um, Omnivore's Dilemma came out the following year. And those books, I think, together have had a big impact on the way people think about this issue. And I don't think it's an accident that Berkeley's successful soda tax, and Berkeley is the only place, uh, in the United States where there's that has voted in a soda tax to date. Um, it was successful for a couple of reasons, but one of them was that it didn't frame the tax issue as a health issue. It framed it as Berkeley against big soda. And the idea that big food corporations do not have people's health as their primary consideration is something that has become much more widely understood by the American public, I think. Uh, it used to be that people thought of food companies as doing a wonderful social service and providing all this good stuff to eat. And now I think people are beginning to see food corporations the way they see uh, corporations selling any product as a, an entity that is trying to make a profit and give profits to its shareholders as its primary consideration. I don't think that uh, food corporations are inherently wicked. It's just that their goals are different from the goals of public health, and they put much more money behind achieving their goals than public health people have access to. Now, obviously, as this curve goes downward, these companies aren't going to stop what they're doing and shut down. As you say in the book, they're aggressively moving into markets, and they, as they have been for a long time, but they're ramping up their efforts to move into markets in places like the Global South, places where uh, incomes are rising. How successful have they been in offsetting their sales in the U.S. by going into foreign markets? 
Well, it's hard to say. They're still reporting quarterly profits, um, although not at the same rate as they did in the past. And PepsiCo, of course, I mean, this book is mostly about Coke and Pepsi because they're by far the major players in this game. And PepsiCo has hedged its bets by uh, investing in a lot of products other than sodas. Coca-Cola is kind of stuck in beverages, and, and what's happening has been harder on that company. But they have committed to put billions of dollars into marketing in Asia, India, and Africa uh, within the next five years. And I, for reasons that are sort of complicated, I, I know students who are traveling in Myanmar, which is the country that Coca-Cola has just moved into within the last couple of years. And there are Coca-Cola signs and sales everywhere in that country. And, of course, my response to that is uh, obesity is sure to follow, because, and particularly because... Uh, it doesn't take nearly as much weight gain among Asians to start showing signs of type 2 diabetes as it does in uh, Caucasian populations, for example. Uh, so you, you, I would expect that we would start seeing uh, a rise in type 2 diabetes quite soon, yeah, and even in places like Myanmar that never had sodas before. Hmm. Yeah. And along those lines, uh, could you talk a little bit about the complications with the marketing campaigns in the U.S. and how certain soda companies have targeted black populations, Hispanic populations, and different classes and what that's meant? Well, I have a chapter in the book on marketing to African and Hispanic Americans, and it was um, it really was revelatory to me. I didn't know this information before I started researching the book, and I didn't know the history of marketing to African Americans in particular. Coca-Cola is a Atlanta-based company. So for a long time, it was a segregated company and um, was, uh, you know, didn't market at all to the African-American population in the South. And that changed when there was a lot of advocacy from the African-American community to have parity with Coca-Cola's marketing. They wanted Coca-Cola to advertise in African-American publications to hire African-Americans on the staff, to hire African-American sales, uh, sales force. And they wanted in on it. And in particular, they wanted advertising. And so Coca-Cola agreed to do that, and it did advertise in African-American publications and newspapers, and it did hire a small uh, sales force, which went out and sold um, sodas to the African-American community. It's really ironic that when the civil rights movement started, that the civil rights, it wasn't an accident, the civil rights movement started at soda fountains, which wouldn't serve African-Americans. Um, I mean, if you recall the way all of that started, there were sit-ins at soda fountains, um, and one of the things that just floored me in when I was doing the research was that Martin Luther King, on the night before he died, 
gave a speech in Memphis uh, in which he exhorted his followers to boycott Coca-Cola because of uh, their hiring practices, and they're not hiring African Americans. So with that kind of background, it becomes much more understandable why the NAACP would uh, support the soda industry in when Mayor Bloomberg in New York wanted to set a, a soda cap, a cap of 16 ounces on sodas that could be sold in the city, the NAACP and some of the major Hispanic groups uh, supported the soda industry against the mayor in that. Um, and I thought that was interesting, too, because later in thinking about it, the head of New York's uh, NAACP chapter said that if only Mayor Bloomberg had gone to talk to him and had sort of explained what he was doing and why he was doing it, uh, they might have had a very different reaction to it. But the soda industry got there first because they had long relationships with African-American and Hispanic organizations that they've been supporting for years. But also, Marin, isn't it true that because of disproportionate rates of poverty, things like soda taxes will necessarily fall harder on the shoulders of communities of people of colour. And there is this argument, I, I know that there is this argument because I learned it from you, that, that soda taxes are regressive. And perhaps what we should be doing is thinking much more about stopping these food corporations making the stuff in the first place. Rather than taxing consumers and taking money out of the consumers' pockets, we should be really going after these corporations much more. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about where, where you are now on thinking about soda taxes. Well, I still think they're a good idea because they send a message to the soda industry that it can't keep keep doing business as usual. But you are absolutely right that they are, in a sense, a regressive tax. On the other hand, it would be better if people in those communities weren't buying sodas. And so the real question is, uh, what can you do about getting the soda industry to stop targeting its marketing to African-American low-income communities? Um, and you're absolutely right about that, but soda taxes are easier to do than that. So in a sense, it's low-hanging fruit. And sodas are low-hanging fruit in public health terms, meaning that they're an easy target. They're sugars, water, and nothing else. They have no nutritional value. That makes them a much, much easier target, even than fast food, for example, because fast food has plenty of nutrients in it. Maybe not the ones that you necessarily need, but uh, it is, you know, it is, you could survive on fast food if you had to. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, the, the politics of this is complicated. And what there hasn't really been is a concerted effort among all of the advocacy groups who are working on these kinds of issues to figure out what they can do that would really make a difference. Warning labels are one idea. That would be a good idea uh, to try to get warning labels on soda cans. Um, I mean, there are five or six major advocacy groups that are working on anti-soda campaigns because there's so much evidence that people who stop drinking them have an easier time maintaining their weight and have lower rates of type 2 diabetes. And in that battle, uh, what I loved in the book was it was a story that you told that complicates things a little bit because um, often 
one is tempted to say, well, you know, we have uh, the, the wicked private sector, you know, Coke and Pepsi on one side, and on the other hand, the virtuous, you know, non-profit foundation medical world. But it's more complicated than that. And you've got a terrific story in the book about the Clinton Foundation's role in messing things up. I wonder if you could share that story. Well, the foundations that have collaborations with soda companies are compromised in what they can do. And that particular story has to do with getting sodas out of schools. Advocacy, one of the things that advocacy groups wanted to do was to get vending machines out of schools. Uh, not just the sodas out of schools, but the vending machines out, because kids were putting dollars into vending machines, and that money was going to, some small proportion of that money was going to support what was ever going, extracurricular activities in the schools. But in a sense, kids' bad health was funding that. And so advocacy groups had been working for a year or so and were very, very close to having an agreement with uh, the beverage companies to remove their products from schools when the Clinton Foundation stepped in and organized and uh, run around what the advocates were doing and partnered with the Partnership for Healthy America, which is a partnership of the Clinton Foundation and the American Heart Association, which in turn partner with the soda companies to keep the vending machines in schools, but to remove the worst of the products. And that's how it ended up, and that was uh, the Clinton Foundation announced that as an enormous victory, the advocates felt that they'd been completely betrayed. So these things are never simple, uh, but these soda companies are everywhere. I mean, their job is to co-opt everybody they can, and they're really good at it. And Marion, where are we now with the whole controversy over marketing to children? I know that there's been a lot of activism around that, and how has that played out? Well, the soda companies have said that they will not market to children under the age of 12 on TV, and what they mean by that is they will not advertise directly to, um, they will not put ads on programs that are designed for children under the age of 12. Um, and there's some percentage, uh, if the market is 35% or more of the people who watch the program are under the age of 12, they won't market. And they do not, in fact, market on kids' cartoon programs. They haven't for a very long time. But they market to children in other ways. Um, and those are documented by advocates all the time who are always coming out with reports. The Rudd Center on Obesity Policy, for example, is always coming out with reports on how uh, soda companies are evading their own self-marketing rules. And I should say that most of the rules on, in fact, all of the rules on uh, restricting marketing to children are uh, self-imposed by the food companies. Um, they, they do self-regulation. Any attempt to put the federal government in, in the middle of this uh, in an attempt to to stop food companies from marketing to children or set nutrition standards for the way for the products that can be marketed to children are met with overwhelming opposition the companies go right to congress and get congress to interfere with it and to say that the government can't pass those kinds of rules um, so my, i see marketing to children as the food industry's line in the sand 
it's the one thing that they will not they will not allow any restrictions on it other than self imposed restrictions that really don't mean very much what sort of data did you find on kids soda habits and is a trend line going down as well as it is for the overall trend line or or is it a different thing happening there well i'm told uh, i just talked to a reporter this morning who told me the trend line for children is down i actually didn't have those data um the idea that you can record the average amount of soda that is being consumed by children aged two to five kind of leaves me breathless. <laughs> um, that there's enough soda being given to kids aged two to five that the USDA can measure it. Wow. Um, it seems absolutely astonishing to me. But I'm told that uh, there's a decline in children's soda consumption just as there is for adults. To get just one concept across, the purpose of a food company is to sell food, no matter what that food is. That's its purpose. Some foods are healthier than others, um, but in general, people would be healthier not eating things that came in packages at all. It would be healthier eating real foods. Um, if you're going to eat packaged foods, you, you need to watch what's in them carefully. Uh, the marketing issues are very, very similar to the marketing issues for any corporation that's selling a product that's not likely to be healthy or not likely to improve health. Um, so in that sense, the merchants of doubt issues that are about tobacco and chemicals, various kinds of chemicals that we use, um, and, other, and, and other kinds of products that are not healthy apply to the food industry just as well. Um, but food is much more complicated than those industries because you know, the rule on smoking is really simple. Don't smoke. Don't start. And if you start, stop. Put those companies out of business. With food, it's much more complicated. We have to eat to live. And, the, and it's okay to have a soda once in a while. Sodas aren't poison. It's the quantity that's a problem. And that's a very, very difficult concept to get across. Um, you know, if I had one concept I would like the American public to understand, it's that larger portions have more calories. And, you know, it seems hilarious to even say it, but it's really not conceptually easy to understand for a lot of people. And the soda industry um, uses that and uses its marketing ability to try to sell more. That's what it's about. And therefore, it's up to public health advocates to try to counter that in every way possible. And I would say this is a place where advocacy is doing a really good job. And the same kind of advocacy that's of curbing soda consumption could be used to curb a lot of other unhealthful practices. And that's the message that I hope everybody will get from reading the book. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Marianne. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, where we explore the hidden pasts, the mystified presents, and the possible futures of the foods we eat. Join us next time when our guest will be Alyssa Hamilton, author of Got Milked, The Great Dairy Deception, and Why You'll Thrive Without Milk. 
You'll be able to find us soon at thesecretingredient.org. But while that's getting up and running, check out the great work Raj and Tom are doing on the food front. Raj is at rajpatel.org, and you can find Tom's award-winning articles and more at motherjones.com. For KUT Radio, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Nathan Bernier with a quick pitch for my podcast, KUT Weekend. All the reporting on Central Texas that comes out of our Austin newsroom. Updated Friday afternoons. Check it out. 